Welcome to the Destiny Church 217 podcast, where we share the sermon of the week from Destiny Church. After the message, check out the show notes for links and more information on how to get connected with Destiny. Let's get into the message. Talking about family trees, family roots today, which is convenient because of my mother being here. Um, Family trees are important, and uh, we're going to talk about that for the next uh, couple weeks. This is part one in a series. We're going to talk about the church's family tree. And I know some of you do not have a, have a um, desire to know a whole bunch about history, but I'm going to make this so amazingly interesting, you will not get bored, okay? <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's, my, uh, that's my mission here for the next uh, few minutes. Um, if you've never read uh, George Orwell's book entitled 1984, I'd encourage you to do that. It's really interesting. It's a novel, and I'm not a big novel reader, but it's, it is it is isn't uh, well worth your time. Uh, written in 1949, about 1984. So he was pretending as though he was in 1984, back in 1949. So some pretty interesting things there. And there is a... Uh, a problem in 1984, and that's the world is not a utopia versus at the end of World War II. It actually becomes very dystopian, and this is the opposite of a utopia is a dystopia. And so this is the, this is the time in which he's writing, and it's, it's, it's pretty analogous to where the world is today. That's why I encourage you to take time to read it. And in, in, in his book, he has a quote which is going to be relevant to our, our topic of the morning. He says this, he who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. That gets very bogged down in literally, in, in, in uh, uh, literacy type phraseology. He who controls the past controls the future, but he who controls the present controls the past. What does all that mean? It means those in power can rewrite the past and thereby control you here and in the future. So if you can, if you can rewrite, if you can erase, take away our history, then they can control you here and have certainly control you in the future. So my goal in this mini-series is to inform you of your past, to inform you of your family tree, to inform you of your roots. Because if you don't know that, then you kind of lose who you are. You kind of lose who you are. That's really the power of a family unit, right? When a son or a daughter grows up and, and I'd send my daughter out into the world and rather give her a bunch of rules and regulations, I'd say, listen, just, just do the Hanson name well. You know, we have a tradition of this, that, and the other thing. And this is how the Hansons do it. And this is who we are. Well, take that and multiply it over the last 2,000 years. And you end up with Christian, the Christian family. And what does our Christian family look like? And what is our heritage? What is our tradition? And who are we? So I think it's important, though, um, that we remember uh, both the good and the bad. Because if all you remember is the good, you, you'll have a tendency to repeat things which uh, cannot be good. And, and just as a side note, as a, as a quasi-political statement, and I know uh, that, that may rub some of you wrong, but that's too bad, <clears throat> that, that you know, t- erasing or changing what American history is and tearing down statues because you don't like what they look like or what, like what they represent, um, th- that's really a pox on the face of America because in the world today, you have to remember where you came from 
where you're going to be destined to repeat it. You can Google it. Number of Holocaust museums in Germany, how many think there are? Well, in America, there'd be zero because that'd be horrible. That would say what a bad people. No, there's probably 12 or 15 Holocaust type museum things in, in Germany. Why? Well, that's horrible. Why should you even celebrate that? Why should you spend money on something so you need to remember? So in our Christian history as well, there's some things that happened through us, some of it... Some of it was partially related to the Crusades and, and some other things because things got wonky. Uh, but we need to remember our entire history. We've got to remember our roots. We have to tend to our roots in order for us to grow strong. Church historians write, it's commonly believed that when the persecution raised against the Christians by Nero in the first century, that Paul and Peter sealed the truth of the gospel with their blood. Hashtag fact. That's how it all began. Jesus said it like this in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind, hey, they hated me first. So why would you expect for the world to just wrap their arms around you and tell you what a wonderful, man, we love Christians. Christians are awesome. We just think we should have more Christians. No, because we have been the fly in the ointment since the beginning of time, particularly where governments are concerned and religion. And so if you're not prepared to have a little hate come your way as a dystopia unfolds in our present day life and, uh, oh, man, I do not have to go there right now, but we will go there eventually, I think. Okay? Here's what Paul said. And this is from the message in Philippians chapter one. I think it's really interesting. He says, I can hardly wait to continue my course. I don't expect to be embarrassed in the least. On the contrary, everything happening to me, I don't know if you can read that, it's kind of small. Everything happening to me where? In this jail, in this jail, only serves to make Christ even more accurately known, regardless of whether I live or die they didn't shut me up. They gave me a platform. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I am his prize. Life versus even more life, I can't lose. There's a man who reckoned himself dead, right? And he found himself dead. Nero <clears throat> had him executed upside down. He was spared um, a crucifixion, really, because he was a Roman soldier. He was beheaded. Didn't go so well for Peter. He was crucified upside down a little bit later under Nero. Andrew was severely beaten to death, tied with ropes and an X-shaped cross where he hung for two days before he died. James, beheaded with a sword. John, thrown into boiling oil. I don't know if you know this, before he went to the island of Patmos, they tried to kill him before the exile and threw him in boiling oil and he's like, what? <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't harm him. So they said, we, we, we gotta do something with him. Let's just take him out of that hot boiling oil and send him to the island of Patmos. Philip, crucified. Bartholomew, beaten. Filleted. If you ever see a stained glass window in a, in, a, in a great old church and you see like somebody with their arms with the flesh, kind of, that's, that's, a, that's a picture of uh, the apostle being filleted alive, Bartholomew. Thomas, 
lanced by uh, idolatrous priests and then burned in an oven. Matthew axed to death with a halberd axe. I had to look up what a halberd axe is. That's what that thing looks like. And that's how Matthew got chopped into pieces. James, he was clubbed to death. He was thrown off the edge of the temple, the tower. He didn't die. So it says in church history that they beat him to death with a fuller's club. That's a fuller's club. That's bronze around the edge of that. We sang the words this morning in our opening song from 2 Corinthians 7, 4. It says, but we have this treasure in jars, clay jars, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, how do you square that verse with someone being crucified upside down, filleted, or beheaded? We say, oh, oppressed but not crushed, persecuted, not struck down, struck down because I got fired from my job for a Christian witness. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having somebody rip your innards out and feed them to the birds. That's the destruction that we're talking about. That's the despair that they said, it's not a big deal to us. Why? Because this treasure is in an earthly jar anyway. It's not here to be forever. And so the book of Acts is where we begin our journey. Um, you all know who Stephen is? Yeah, I've rehearsed already the 12 apostles to you and how they died. Now, Stephen is the first non-disciple Christian martyr. What was he? Well, in Acts chapter 6, he was selected to be the very first deacon of the church in Acts chapter 6. Turn the page. He's the very first martyr in the Christian church. Stoned to death. Great way to start it. Uh, A week or so ago, I I spoke to you about Polycarp. Remember him at at age 86 and 155? Polycarp was a disciple of John. He knew John. He learned at the feet of John, John the Apostle. And he he lived in Smyrna, which is over by Turkey. And Nero was having all kinds of conniption fits because of the Christians. He knew that Polycarp, this this man who is really responsible for bringing together most of what we call the New Testament today, uh, he heard... Nero heard that Polycarp was, was, you know, doing all kinds of Christian stuff over there and had him drug over to uh, Rome and lit him on fire. Lit him on fire. Why? Because historically it says he refused to burn even but a pinch of incense to the Roman emperor. Come on, just do it. Save yourself. Save your family. Just just a little pinch in the name of Caesar, throw it on the fire, we'll let you go. No, I can't do it. I will not worship Caesar. I will not worship. So they said, okay. So they sentenced him to burn at the stake. That's a, the historical picture. It's obviously not a photograph. It's, it's a depiction of what it was because here's what happened. They, they, they tied him to the stake and they lit it on fire and the flames came up around him and never touched him. I mean, he just looked right back at him. Can't destroy me. It frustrated the Romans so terribly that they took a dagger. They jumped into the flames and they stabbed him to death. And then the blood and water from his body put out the flames. His dying words, quote, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. 
You ever heard of the St. Lawrence Seaway? It goes all the way through Newark, all the way up to Duluth. That's the St. Lawrence Seaway. That's the, that's the inner, the inner coastal, the inner, it's the way that you can get from the Atlantic all the way to Duluth. St. Lawrence Seaway, St. Lawrence River. It's named after this guy right here. That's St. Lawrence. He was born in 225. And some of these dates you might want to write down because I'm going to do it chronologically. So you're going to have a little bit of a timeline to help you. So what's going on in 225? 225, Rome is still 150 years pretty much from being overtaken and run. And, and, but Rome has peaked and Rome is beginning to realize all these people that are moving. We need taxes. We need more, we need more taxes. We need more money. And so they start going to the people. We need, your mo- we need more money. We need more money. And the thing about uh, Lawrence, he worked in the church. And you know what Lawrence had a passion to do? Lawrence had a passion to take care of the needy and the poor and the sick. That was his deal. And he became quite elevated in the church because of what his mission, his personal mission. He wasn't, a, he wasn't St. Lawrence back in the day. He's just Lawrence. Hey, Lawrence. Hey, Lawrence. That was Lawrence. He wasn't St. Lawrence. It's just He liked taking care of sick people and everything. And, but the church had begun, uh, in the eyes of Rome, to be, begin to get some power. And so that to keep the Christians down, Rome went to the church and said, went to uh, Lawrence rather, and said, we want you to bring the coffers. We want you to bring all of the, all of the uh, what was the word? We want you to bring all of the... Uh, treasure. We want you to bring the church's treasure to Rome. We want you to bring the treasure here. And, uh, and, and let's, just, let's just project ourselves a few years down the road. You know, there's coming a day when the church will no longer be tax exempt. You realize this, don't you? Okay, just helping you brace yourself for these types of things. Because the government comes to Lawrence and says, hey, we think the church has got a lot of money and we want the church's treasure. Lawrence goes, what are you talking about? We don't have a lot of treasure. Uh, okay, okay. Give me three days. You can look this up in the life in the life of Saint Lawrence. He said he said to Rome, "Give me three days, and I will bring back the treasure of the church to you." So for three days, he went around the city of Rome and he got all the sick people and all the poor people that the church had been helping. And on the third day, he walked into the courtroom. And thousands and thousands of poor and sick were with him. And he said to Rome, he said to the Caesar, here is the church's treasure. You think that's set real well with Rome? No, this is why he's St. Lawrence today, ladies and gentlemen. He said, here is the church's treasure. So they condemned him to a very unusual death. They tied him in ropes and put him on a griddle. Put him like a barbecue pit. And they roasted him like a pig. Slowly. So he wouldn't die right away. An iron grill of slow fire roasted like the flesh of a pig, little by little. And as he burned, it is reported by historians that he said, or that, that the flames did not even harm him. And he said, you may turn me over now. I am done on this side. <laughs> and just before he died, St. Lawrence said, it is now cooked enough. And gave up the ghost. I mean, can you even begin to put yourself in any of these positions? This is your family. This is why you get to sit here today. This is your heritage. Well, God bless America, 1776. Flight, listen, we're just a baby country. We're a baby, baby country. 
And to think this is going to be around a real long time, I think is sadly mistaken. People back in the day of Rome, oh, Rome will be here forever. Rome lasted about 400 years. Well, since at the birth of Christ, they disintegrated in 436 maybe, right around there. Okay, this is one of my favorites. This is uh, Mr. Sebastian, St. Sebastian. He joined uh, the Christian army. He joined the Roman army in 283. He joined, wait a second, he's a Christian. He's a Christian and he joined the Roman army. Why would you do that? The Romans are killing Christians. His mission in life was to be an undercover agent in the Roman army to help save Christians. So he looked just like a Roman soldier. But on the down low, he was always working to save Christians. Now, that worked for a while and until uh, he was appointed captain of the guard, still not knowing he was a Christian, and two soldiers who were Christians got arrested. Their names, historically, Marcus and Marcillian, they were Christians who were imprisoned for refusing to make a public sacrifice to the Roman gods. Okay, so here's these two brothers. They were in the Roman army, and Sebastian hears about it. They got arrested because they wouldn't do what the Romans told them to do. And so he goes to them, and he goes, hey, guys, what's going on, man? I'm a Christian. What happened? Well, you know, we didn't want to worship to the Roman gods, blah, 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 and now they're going to kill us and, uh, unless we recant our Christianity. Sebastian says to them, you can't recant your Christianity. Well, they said, my mom, this is a true story, my mom and my dad are encouraging us to go ahead and recant to, to say that we're not Christians to spare our life. I mean, deep down in someone's heart, you might as a parent say, go ahead, just, you know, but we know that we know this is not the right thing. So, so Sebastian goes, what? Your parents? Yeah, they're not Christians. They're telling me that we should, that we should give up the faith. He goes, where do they live? Sebastian goes to the two boys' house. And they were pretty well-off people that even the mayor of the city was there in their house that night. And Sebastian led mom and dad and the mayor of their city to the Lord that night so that then they changed their tune to their sons and said, listen, boys, you can't. In light of what eternity is, we, we now no longer want you to uh, uh, give up the faith. We want you to stay strong. Well, because the mayor was in the room that night, word got back to Caesar that uh, Sebastian was an undercover agent for Christianity. Do you think that set well? No. So what they did is they took Sebastian, and uh, a, a Dioclesian was the Roman emperor at the time. They bound him to a stake. And this is the picture of the depiction of that. They bound him to a stake, and they put him in front of an arrow-shooting firing squad. And they riddled his body with arrows. Terrible, horrible. Is he dead? Leave him there. They all left. At night, a woman by the name of Irene, and you'll never forget this woman because it's good night Irene. Irene came and saw that Sebastian was not totally dead. She took him down. She took him home. Her husband, by the way, was also a martyr under Rome. Took him home, nursed him back to health, and Sebastian lived. Now Sebastian decided he didn't want to be undercover anymore. He said, I got to go find Dioclesian, and I'm going to tell him what's what. 
And so he looked up the emperor, he tracked down the emperor, found him, the story goes, found him in a stairwell. It's a really interesting story. But nonetheless, he found him and then in the markets began to proclaim Christianity and how crooked Rome was and how crooked the emperor was. And of course, the emperor's not going to stand for that. So he sends his guards to go snag him. And then, uh, oh, I got to tell you this. Historically, they said he was so full of arrows, he looked like a sea urchin. That's why that picture is an accurate picture. So they led him to die, came back, Dilys, and surprised Sebastian was still alive, grabbed him. Historians write this, the time that he would not permit Sebastian to escape, he ordered his guards to immediately seize him and to beat him to death with clubs. And then they threw his body into the open sewer of Rome as a message for all Christians who would dare criticize Rome. He's in your family. I like that. He got some guts. I mean, if I can't, if I, I mean, think about it. If you, if you, if you were actually healed of all of those injuries, wouldn't you just kind of like want to get a, an alias and go live in another country somewhere and just thank God you made it out? No, 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 no. He said, no, I, I can't. I can't keep quiet. I've got to go address the powers in Rome. So now, 25 years later, uh, the year is uh, 312, and Constantine, who is now the emperor of Rome, and the reason, here's why, here's, here's, here's a helpful hint, Hannah. I'm following on my timeline. Oh, you're following on your own timeline, great. 312 is when Constantine, emperor of Rome, listen to this, emperor of Rome gets saved. The first Caesar, Caesar Augustus all the way through, all the people killing Christians, flaying them alive, beheading them. Constantine gets saved. That's his name, Constantine. He gets saved, and it's a long story. It's a beautiful story. In the night, he has a vision of the Cairo, the, the Greek symbol, put on all the, all the, all the uh, shields of his soldiers, and he goes in, and he, and he has victory in this war. It's just a great, great, great story. So Constantine gets saved in 312, and the reason that I remember when Constantine got saved is for, you know how you have little memory pegs, how you put little things together? It happened in 312. What do we know about 312? In Illinois, that's the zip code for Chicago. Or not the zip code, but the area code. The 312. The 312 Chicago. So now you'll never forget when Constantine got saved. He got saved in the 312. <laughs> Welcome to the little quirky things inside my head of how I remember things. So he got saved in 312. He got saved in 312. So what happened when he got saved? Well, uh, a lot of horrible things happened eventually. And uh, um, gosh, I need to give you just a little bit of context because we're going to jump forward about uh, 1,000 years. So I've taken you all the way from Peter and Paul. I've taken you through the uh, uh, um, first couple hundred years, all the way up to 312. 312 is when Christianity becomes legal. We're no longer undercover. We're no longer strengthened by our persecution. We are weakened by our acceptance. So... Up for the first 300 years, the church is growing, the church is strong. Yes, people are dying, but it is the blood, uh, Tertullian, first century historian, the blood of Christian martyrs is the seed of the church. So, so he, he, uh, Constantine gets saved, and, there's, and, and now he, you ever heard of Constantinople? Okay, that's the, the Roman uh, 
Rome got kind of split and there's some a lot of stuff going on. So he had Rome, but then he had Constantinople, the city. He became so ravenously Christian that he didn't like all the gods that were all over the city in Rome. He says, we got to have a Christian headquarters. We're going to call, we're going to go over there and make, make Cont, uh, uh, Constantinople. And that was his headquarters. And so the church, in fact, right around a thousand, that's when the church split between Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. Rome, up here in Italy, Rome, West, Constantinople, East, began to split, and Constantinople, Eastern Orthodox religion, Eastern Orthodox, Christians, Christians, you know. So that's when that split happened. Constantine did us a huge service and a huge disservice because he legitimized us. We say there was a lot of blood that wasn't spilt. But the problem was is that the church began to enjoy all the power and all the position and all the prestige. And all of a sudden we started, started wearing robes and collars and big funny pointed hats and swinging of incense and all these things began to come around the church. Because that was it. Catholic, if you don't know the word Catholic, small c means universal. So when you say the Catholic church, you're saying in the original language, uh, the universal church. That's why we say Roman Catholic church. That's just a little bit of a semantics for some, but not for for historians. So the Catholic Church, we're part of the Catholic Church. That's why we can say in the creeds, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Small c. If you ever read those in the creeds, that's meaning us, the universal church. Here we are, the believers of Christ. But the Roman Catholic Church, boom, up there, problem, Constantine, that way. And the church began to, to... require that even kings and rulers bow at the foot of the leader of the church, a la the Pope. And so kings would bow. A king would bow to the Pope? Yeah, you talk about a heady position. You see what's going on now? Now there's all kinds of power. And who's getting the power? The church is getting the power. All kinds of authority. The church is getting the authority. And that's the Catholic church. For a thousand years, from 300, from the 312, all the way up to what we're going to talk about next, which is 1300. So for a thousand years, a thousand years, a millennia, the church just began to morph into something that was not very pleasant. Because you're still, you're still in the dark ages, right? All right, so what happens is one of the first glimmers of hope is in 1300, 1376, a man by the name of John Wycliffe. You ever heard of Wycliffe? What's he famous for? John Wycliffe, this is, I'm saying 1376. 1376, this is how many years before the Reformation? The Reformation is at 1500. That's where Protestants, that's where everybody that is Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, anybody but Roman Catholic, the Protestants from the word protest. We are Protestants. And we'll get that next week. Because <clears throat> this is the first 1,500 years of church history in, a, in, a, in, in the cliff notes, right? So we've gone 300, 312, 1,000 years of just not good stuff because all the crusades are in there, popes fighting other popes, multiple popes. It's just crazy. And it gets bad and it gets bloody and it gets ugly. And the church did some terrible things, but a lot of other people did terrible things. And I'm not here to to try to erase that. I'm just telling you because I want to bring you to uh, 1300s with John Wycliffe. He began to translate the Latin and the Greek into English. He was from England. 
way before Luther. I know it dings me a little bit uh, to talk about Luther in such high esteem, but Wycliffe comes along way before Luther and starts translating the Bible into English. Do you think that set well with the Pope? No, no. Why? Because if I can keep you ignorant of what the Bible says, then I can say it says anything. If I control your past, you don't have a future. The only future you have is what I tell you because I control the present. And the, your lack of information of your family tree of your family tree will serve me well because then you won't know of Sebastian. There it is. There it is. See. So this is what happened. John Wycliffe wrote, quote, England belongs to no pope. The pope is but a man subject to sin. But Christ is the Lord of lords and his kingdom is to be held directly and solely of Christ alone. Ha. So that put him in bad, 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 bad uh, light with Rome. Rome says, what? Come here. We want to talk to you. Heads up. When a religious institution says, come here, we want to talk to you because you've done something wrong, they're going to they're gonna give it to you. Look at church history. Look at church history. Hey, uh, you, you're a heretic. Come talk with us about that. <laughs> not gonna. That's what, wife Cliff, why, that's what wife Cliff said. I know my church history. He says, I'm not showing up to your little council. I'm not gonna go to Rome because you know what's gonna happen to me when I go there? Their preferred, preferred method was, was torching them, was lighting them on fire. She says, I'm not going. Because I have a Christmas Eve service to preach. Went to preach the Christmas Eve service, died. The saints, uh, he didn't die on Christmas Eve. He had a, what they believe is a stroke. He lived for a week between Christmas and New Year's and he died on New Year's Eve. So the, the believers there in England, which is like, this is north of London, um, over towards Birmingham, uh, a little area just south and west of Birmingham, London, of, of Birmingham, England. So they, what do they do? They, they bury him and they have a Christian funeral, so forth. Well, Rome, of course, there aren't, you know, we don't have cell phones and fax machines, right? They don't have the internet. It takes a while. The word gets back to Rome. He's not coming. And by the way, he already, he's already dead. You think that stopped Rome? No, they had a council. They decided to call a council over this whole thing. It's called the Council of Constance. And basically it says this, you can't quit, Wycliffe. We are going to fire you. You ever been with that situation? Say, I quit. They said, no, no, no you're fired. Uh-huh, right? Well, this is what happened. Wycliffe said, I'm not going. And he died. They said, you're not going to quit. We're going to fire you. You know what they did? They got on their horses in Rome and they rode all the way there to that little town by the River Swift and they exhumed his body. And then they took his exhumed body and they gathered up all the books and all the writings that Wycliffe has ever done. Anything that they get their hands on that had his name on, anything he's ever done, they piled, they piled the, the sticks. The old English word is faggots. They piled the faggots, which are bundles of wood, because if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs or whatever, you hear the word faggots and you're gonna, what? And it just means bundles of tinder, bundles of wood. So they piled these things up and they put his body on there. They piled all of his books on there and then they piled more wood on top and they poof. It wasn't good enough that he was already dead. They wanted to fire him, literally. So they exhumed a dead body to burn it. 
pulverized his bones, all of and took the ashes of his body and his writings and dumped them into the river Swift. That's how I know that there's a river there because historically in, the, in, in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it'll tell you that they put the ashes of John Wycliffe in the river Swift. So this brings us to our final two this morning. The first of which is John Huss, H-U-S-S. So this is uh, not even, what is this, 50 years later. John Huss. And I have a photo. This is a photo of John Huss being burned at the stake. You see the little bundles of sticks all around him, and that's him. And this is right out, this is right out of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs is older than the King James Bible. Let's just put that in context. So I want to say the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh, welcome. No, this is older than King James. All right? 1536. Is, where that, is when that page was first written. Okay, Fox's, or 1563 rather, because that's right after uh, uh, the Gutenberg Press, 1450. So this is mass produced. It's, it's actual history of what happened to John Huss. 40 years later, after um, Wycliffe, John Huss was a Czech, Czech Catholic priest. He's a Catholic priest. He's like Luther was. Right? Luther was a priest first. He wasn't out of the womb a Protestant. We don't even have Protestantism right now. This is before the Reformation. This is before 1517. This is, this is John Huss, a forerunner of Luther and a predecessor of Luther. So he made the mistake of finding some of John Wycliffe's writings. And he goes, this guy makes sense. And so he began to talk that his belief was that Christ, not the Pope, was the head of the church. Did he not know? John, 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 don't you know enough of the family history that if you start on with something like that, what's going to happen to you, John, John, John? If you start running on your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and you're not going to bow your knee to Rome and you're going to say that the, the Pope doesn't have power over the church, that Christ is the head of the church, you know what's going to happen to you, John? I think he did. So they condemned him as a heretic. And on July 6th, 1415, he was given his final opportunity to recant because that's how these people roll. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. Isn't that what? I mean, all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar and the Hebrew boys. And they're all going to give you another chance. They're going to give you another chance. Bow to the false God. Bow to the false God one more time. And you're going to have to be able, you are going to be, have to be able to say, nah, I'm not going to burn a pinch. I'm not even going to burn a pinch to Caesar. I'm not going to bow. Well, he said after he refused, he was, taken to the, he was taken to the cathedral and stripped naked in the cathedral and led to the courtyard. He was tied to the stake and given another chance to renounce his belief. So now he's tied to the stake. They got all the stuff gathered around. They're ready, ready. Are you sure? His final words was this. Well, the, follower, the followers of Huss in his execution wrote that Huss sang songs and hymns while being engulfed in flames and his final words were Lord Jesus I am ready to die it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death I pray to thee have mercy on my enemies you know we've got this thing in us like you come on 
come after me. I'll, I'll knock you out. You know, I'll. Oh, back to Polycarp. Remember when they came? All the way back, I'm totally rewinding, all the way back to Polycarp. Remember when Rome came to get him from Smyrna all that way? I told you a couple weeks ago that, that Polycarp offered to cook his captors dinner. Now, 100 years later, Martin Luther, 1500, 1517. Martin Luther, this is a quote of Martin Luther. We are all Hussites. So he's paying homage to John Huss from a hundred years before. He says, listen, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today if it weren't for John Huss. So in fact, we are not Lutheran. We are all Hussites. He says we are all Hussites. Interesting. So I want to bring you one final uh, martyr. And her name is Joan. Joan of Arc. Now, she wasn't a philosopher. She wasn't a theologian. She wasn't a pastor. She wasn't a deaconess. Who was she? She was a 12-year-old French girl who said, when I pray, I can hear God talk. You think, that's not a big deal. Well, let me just say, let me just say, you go down to the psych ward and tell them you talk to God, they're going to go, well, yeah, right. But when you tell them, and he talks back to me, they're going to go, Walk this way, right here. We have, a, we have a room for you right here. Okay? Now bring yourself back 500 years. This is what we had with Joan of Arc. She's 12 years old. Uh, she was originally charged with witchcraft and heresy, but there was no way to prove witchcraft, so they charged her with heresy, heresy of being a heretic. She threatened the church hierarchy through her claim that she actually communicated with God and her charges, quote, her behavior showed blasphemous, blasphemous presumption, in particular, that she claimed to have heard from the Lord, prophesied the future, endorsed her letters with the name of Jesus, thereby identifying herself with the novel and suspect of the name of Jesus, professed to be assured of her salvation. She professed to really know that she was saved. That's heresy. Because only the church could tell you if you were saved or not. And they didn't like that she wore men's clothes into battle. Which, if you're going into battle, you might want to have a pair of pants on versus a skirt. I'm just saying. <laughs> So the trial transcript, translation of her sentencing, this is it. This is how they sentenced her. Whenever the deadly poison of heresy infects a member of the church, who is then transformed into a member of Satan, utmost care must be taken to keep the contagion of the disease from spreading to other parts of the mystical body of Christ. Sounds like a religious thing, doesn't it? We say and determine that you have falsely imagined revelations and divine aspirations, that you are pernicious, temptress, presumptuous, credulous, rash, superstitious, a false prophetess, a blasphemer against God and his saints, scornful of God in his sacraments, a transgressor of divine law, sacred doctrine, and ecclesiastical decrees, that you are a seditious, cruel, apostate, schismatic, strain in many ways from our faith, and that these ways you have rashly sinned against God and his church and thereby sentenced to death by fire because she prayed to God she knew she was saved I, I, I don't have 
I don't have, I don't have, uh, you, you asked what day? As May 30, uh, 1431. She's 19 years old. 1431, 19 years old. <clears throat> so, you know, I kind of, I found some old pictures and that kind of helps us kind of understand. Uh, but there was a more modern movie done of Joan of Arc and I just wanted to show you about a minute of that so you can kind of, you know, get a feel of what this was all about. So we bring the lights down just for a minute and so you can watch uh, just this minute long clip of Joan of Arc. When you say being burned alive, that's our history, it's our past. And we can't let the godless age of the systems today allow to rewrite our history. These are our ancestors. These are our brothers and sisters, just a few. And we have a family tree. And so we have to tend the roots in order to remain strong. We must know our past or we will, we will crumble. If you don't know the people that allow you to sit in this room today went through that, when you have a little bit of persecution, you'll fold like a cheap suit. And my goal is that you would stay strong. My goal for me is that I would stand strong. Could I do what Sebastian did? Could I do what Joan of Arc did? Could I do what Wife Cliff did? I don't know. I think we'll know when that time comes. But if you're not prepared for the inevitable, well, what if we were praying for a great revival? Wonderful. I am too. I want to see the Spirit of God sweep across America and just have a, a, just a saturation of the Holy and everything. But I don't see that coming our way. And I'm not a prophet of doom and gloom. This is a, this is a message of hope. Because for the next two weeks, we're going to move past the Reformation until we end up with something that looks like this. Anybody remember that? That was in your lifetime, ladies and gentlemen. Who are these people, Christians? Why are they being beheaded? I could have showed you some pictures. I could have showed you some pictures where these Muslims dug their fingers into their eyes, literally, and cranked their head back and cut it off and then set their head on the body that they had just decapitated. I could have shown you that. This is pretty sanitary. 
21 Christians. Why were they executed? Because they were Christians. What did they do? They loved Jesus. Well, they threw bombs or they, they, they were diverse. No, 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 no. They, they were just subversive to the, to the Rome of the day. We're tired of you Christian troublemakers. You are troublemakers. You're always talking about righteousness and doing the right thing and, and all this other kind of stuff. Would you just not go along with the dystopia? Go along with the flow. It's all good. You're getting your two chickens in a pot. You're, you're, we're, we're, we're letting you smoke your, we're letting you get, we're, we're legalizing everything for you. Go ahead. It's all right. Be numb. Be numb. Let us do what we want to do. Let the elites, let us run this, just let us do what we need to do. And you just be a dumb old sheep. Every drop of martyr's blood is seed for the church. It is our roots. And so our sermon text, I can hardly wait to continue on my course. I don't expect to be embarrassed in the least. On the contrary, everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ, Christ more accurately known. Regardless of whether I live or die, they don't shut me up. They didn't shut up John Wycliffe. I just read you his story. Do you think that was the end of John Wycliffe? No. Was that the end of John Huss? No. We tell that story because it's our history. It's who we are. And if we don't know it, we will repeat it. So it's the encouraging word for us in 2 Corinthians. Listen. Therefore, we do not lose heart. See, this is the encouragement. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Now, when we talk about light and momentary troubles, I'm not talking about a flat tire on the way to church. Well, that must be the Lord telling me I shouldn't go to church today. No, no. Your light and momentary, what, what would that be? What would a light and momentary affliction be in the time that it was written if somebody said something bad about you because you were a Christian? No. It's, in, it's achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here it is, watch. Verse one. Now we know, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, do the Greek means demolish, disintegrate. It's just not, well, this is, when I preach the funeral sermon, well, this body be destroyed. Well, how to get destroyed? Well, they had a heart attack and they died. Now we're just putting in the grave. No, if your body be burned at the stake, if they fillet you alive and cut your head off, that's the destruction we're talking about in context. Not a funeral service down at Preston Hanley Funeral Home. Right? We're talking about being destroyed by the powers of Rome or the, those who are the Antichrist. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by the hands of man. Understand the context that was written in. You are in more danger when you are comfortable than when you are persecuted. I'm telling you, don't go looking for persecution, but if you're not ready for it to come, you'll wilt like a lily in the heat of summer, right? So you've got to say, listen, okay, these are tough times. 
I was lamenting with somebody earlier because somebody that we thought should be voted in didn't get voted in. That's, that's, listen, I want righteous people in right, right, righteous positions. I think you ought to vi- vote for people that don't kill babies. I just, that may be crazy, but I just don't vote for people that are pro-baby killers. Well, what about the economic, what about my pocketbook? He's going to, if you can stand before God and you say you voted for that man because he was going to give you more money in your purse versus that man who was going to kill babies, come on, come on, come on, come on. Get an eternal view, right? So that's, for me, for me, that's a litmus test. I will not support anybody. Well, who would you, there's only two parties, who are you going to vote for? I'll write my own name in. <laughs> I'm scared. What are you going to do? A little bit of persecution for the church for the first 300 years did us very well. Did us extremely well. Strengthened us. Gave us some roots to withstand the next thousand years of crazy. As the church went every which way but right. Sideways, upside down, back and forth. Bloodbaths and, and pomp and circumstance. Until the likes of Huss and Wycliffe and next week Luther come to the fore and say, listen, we just gotta, we gotta reform this whole thing because it's gone off the rails. And then after that next week, when we talk from 1500 up to the 20th century or so, we're gonna finish up with perhaps some Coptic Christians on a beach in Libya. I'm not quite sure how it's gonna finish up. I have a couple ideas. One is that I'd like to recount to you the story of a, of a man by the name of Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was a Lutheran pastor from Romania. And right after World War II, communism began just to run rampant in his country. And all the church leaders decided we better side with Stalin and Marxism because they're going to increase our pay. Remember the carrot and the stick? Remember the pink police, right? So we're gonna, and so they had this big consortium where all these leaders of the nation of, of uh, Romania were there. And this is maybe more information than you wanna know, but at, at, at a moment during that convocation that was being broadcast throughout all of Romania, live, Richard Wormbrand looks over at his wife and says, you know, if I were to speak, what would happen to me? You would, be, you would be a widow. And she responded, I would rather be a widow than have a coward for a husband. What? That sounds like polycarp. That sounds like roots. That's like somebody got a clue. I can't go with the flow with that. So he stood up. I'd like to talk to you about his life, maybe. Pretty powerful. Encourage you to check him out. He's the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. He only died in the year 2000. But he was hung over a post, and the bottom of his feet were beat with a club for three years in solitary confinement. Never seen the light of day. For three years. Wow. This is my family tree. I'm proud of that. That he never, he never, he never said, no, I'll go ahead and I'll just recant. No. Richard Wormbrand. 
So I'm very passionate. If you have not understood what's happening here since I talked about uh, uh, death a month ago, talking about this is not a drill a couple weeks ago, sharing my testimony last week, three weeks of studying. It's important for us, so important for us to know our history and our roots. And if you don't tend your roots, you'll have, your tree will die. And my mission is to make sure you know your family tree. Because when the time comes, and it's coming in a time for all of us where you have an opportunity to deny Christ, you're gonna say, no, I'm not going to. It's not in the family tree. That's not what, it's not what we do. We don't back down. We don't shut up. We keep the faith, amen? amen. Stand with me. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to be strong, but not in our own strength. I'm absolutely convinced that none of these martyrs did it in their own strength. It was not by power, not by might. It was by your spirit. So I need you, we need you every hour, every hour, not to deny you. That we would stand strong in the moment of persecution, we would not deny you. And though flames consume us or knives fillet us, we will not recant. We will not. They say, we'll give you one more chance. You say, I cannot. Here I stand. I can do no other. Do whatever you have to do, but I have to do what my Lord wants me to do. And so, Lord, our eyes are fixed on you. Yes, I think governments and politicians and, and electoral races are important, but my eyes, I look through those to you. I look at you as my sustainer, my provider. Keep us all, Lord, strong to the very end. If you don't have that determination, you've never given your life to Jesus, this is the moment when you say, I need that. I'm going to need that. And Jesus is the way. If that's you, raise your hand in determination with me. Say, yeah, I may be weak, but he is strong. <laughs> I may be weak. I don't know that I could. I don't know that I could, but with him, all things are possible. Lord, look at us, these jars of clay that you made. We give our lives back to you today. We give our lives back to you today, a living sacrifice that we pray is acceptable in your sight. Keep us in your care. And we want you to know how deeply we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you've done. And now seal our names with yours. We are proud to be in this family tree. We will not waver by your spirit. And now may the peace of God lead you and guide you. May his spirit give you strength in times of darkness. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. As we conclude this podcast, we want to take a moment to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please consider subscribing to receive our weekly podcast on your device. Check out the show notes for links to our website, more information about this message, or to support our ministry. You've been listening to the Destiny Church 217 Podcast, your place for real, relevant relationships.